all you beautiful people, and welcome to the Glorious in the Mundane podcast. I'm your host, Christy Knuckles, and it feels like forever since we've talked. I hope this episode of Summer in the Psalms finds you well. I don't know, even me just saying Summer in the Psalms out loud just helped me just to breathe and savor the last few moments of the dog days of summer. I know you guys are going to think I'm really weird, but I do this thing about once a day when I'm home all day working in the summer. Nathan Knuckles likes to keep our home on a stun as far as cooling goes. He's pretty intense about it, and I let him be because everyone should be allowed to be intense about a few things. But I've just learned to keep really soft sweatshirts and comfy socks handy at all times. Yes, in August. Or I'll just go outside for a quick bake in the sun. Just today, I went outside in jeans and a t-shirt, and I just laid across our front steps. They get scorching hot in the afternoon sun, and after about five or ten minutes, I've thawed out and slightly warmed up, and I return inside for a while until I just need to go outside and have a quick rebake. Also, I don't know if I've ever told you this about myself, but I also fully use my seat heaters in my car in the summer. (laughs) Now I've blown your minds, I know. When I was searching for a car on CarMax not long ago, I wanted to buy this past spring. And this isn't a commercial for CarMax, I promise. I just love CarMax. This is the third car we bought from them, and we've sold two cars with them. But when I was doing this big search for a car, I put in Ford because, I don't know, over the years we've just become a Ford family. Again, not a commercial, just some trivia. And the next thing I put in the search is seat heaters. So just Ford and seat heaters. (laughs) Even on the way home from the beach this year, my girls were laughing at me that I had seat heaters on. It's just therapeutic to me. I have no idea. It's really not that I'm freezing. I just like how it feels on my back. I have no idea why I just told you all of that, but I think just thinking of the dog days of summer and how hot it is. It's funny. I remember last year around this time when school was starting, I did a podcast this very week that was kind of that summer, please don't really end. (laughs) I told you about our big summer splurge last year, a big patch of grass. You'll be happy to know that our lawn has survived a year, but they were definitely not kidding around when they told us that fescue grass thrives in the winter. It struggles more in the summer months, and it's very lush, lush as spring, right in the dead of winter. I think some of you have seen the pictures. It almost doesn't even look real. But our big splurge this summer was landscaping. I know, so exciting, right? After a whole year of literally nothing in our flower beds but weeds and rocks, we finally have some plants and bushes. We also painted the exterior of the house. I mean, we didn't. We had a friend help us with it, but it took all summer. Our paint job was going on about 10 years, and we couldn't stretch it anymore, and it has been quite the project. But anyway, as I was saying in the episode last year in August, I covered all the wildlife that we have out here at Keeper's Branch, especially in the summer months. I covered everything from telling you about our mammoth moths, coyotes, lizards, spiders, hummingbirds, and snakes. Up to that point, we had only seen black snakes, but we can finally officially add copperhead snakes to the list as Nathan shot one through the head with a crossbow last Sunday morning as we were leaving to go to church. The girls and I stepped out on the porch dressed and ready, only to find Nathan chopping a copperhead in half with a hoe just to make sure the job was finished. So that was fun. (laughs) I think I also told you about the crickets and frogs out here and how they sing. And then I went on a rampage about how frogs can kill dogs. (laughs) 
<laughs> Do you remember that? That was the same episode that I told you we also have hawks, and I admitted to my irrational but possibly not so irrational fear that one might carry my little dog George Banks away. <laughs> And that there are these companies that actually make these little spiked vests for dogs that protect them from predators. (laughs) You cannot make this stuff up. I'm sorry I'm reminding you all this, but I've told a few people this past week about Nathan shooting the copperhead through the head with a crossbow, and they looked at me funny, and I realized how country that sounds, (laughs) and maybe actually just kind of crazy. But I should explain. The reason that Nathan keeps a crossbow handy, it's not because he's a hunter, but he has been hunting a certain critter around Keeper's Branch for several months. This particular critter made the list of wildlife last year, except when I mentioned it, I just sort of named it in the list of various other creatures that we weren't too concerned about. I simply didn't know then what I know now. I think I've maybe shown you pictures before and told you that we've been trying to trap armadillos for months now. At first, we thought we had like a gopher or a groundhog in our yard because we had all these holes everywhere. And I've heard many a story of people trying to get rid of gophers and groundhogs, stories that I can't even really tell out loud because I'd have to be sure that you were country people too. But when we discovered that it was an armadillo making all the holes, I mean like 40 or 50 holes in our yard, it was war. Apparently, they also carry leprosy, so there's that too. After checking all the Tennessee laws on hunting armadillos, Nathan invested in a crossbow and has been on a mission. I've been calling him Mr. McGregor. So this is why he had a crossbow handy to kill the copperhead last Sunday. And just one Sunday after that, he got the armadillo. Sweet victory. I'm sure there's more than one armadillo up here on this ridge, but at least for now, there's peace on the lawn at Keeper's Branch. We had such a summer of adventure. I think the older our children get, I'm realizing that our vacations are changing and our adventures are that much more adventurous. I told you about all of our horse adventures, and hopefully you caught our pictures of the Alaskan cruise that Nathan and I went on and Noah went with us because it was his 18th birthday. But you'll see that one day Nathan and Noah and I went on a little motorcycle tour for about three hours in Skagway, Alaska. I'll say this. 40 miles an hour doesn't seem very fast unless you're 44 years old and you're on a motorbike rounding corners on Alaskan mountain roads. <laughs> they made us wear eye protection that day, but what I kept thinking the whole time was how I needed teeth protection. I kept my mouth shut really tight to keep bugs out and rocks out. But it was such a beautiful adventure. We got to see bald eagles and salmon, and we hiked up to this beautiful waterfall. And I surprised myself that after three hours of riding, I was actually bummed when it was over. All that to say, that's how I feel about summer all over again. I'm just bummed. I know it's time to move on. It's past time, actually. School has started for all the normal people around here. But we just needed one more week. It's a bit surreal for me to say out loud that we're going to have all three kids home this year for homeschooling. Talk about country and crazy. But I couldn't be more excited. Even Noah, for his senior year, has chosen to finish at home. He's already 18, as I've said, and he only lacks four credits to graduate. And he's just ready to play some music. We're excited to help give him those opportunities to to learn and get his feet wet with playing with us and doing what he loves. I'm sure I've told you this before, but when I say homeschool, you have to be assured that I'm not teaching them anything. (laughs) I'm a facilitator, an encourager, a grader of papers, 
all their lectures they watch online, and I just make sure that homework gets done like any mama would. I always say that any type of school situation is a can of worms. It doesn't matter if it's private, public, or homeschool. Just pick the can of worms that you feel like you can handle popping open. There's no perfect scenario, and sometimes even one child might need to do something completely different than another. But this year, and I know it will just be for one year, we're going to have all three of them home once more, and I'm just secretly giddy. Will it be hard and a can of worms at times? Absolutely, but I want to savor every last bit that we have as the original five under the Keeper's Branch roof. I'm so excited. So even as things amp up, what if we were intentional in slowing down at least one thing? As schedules fill up and all the things start happening and we're doing the drill, what if we pulled our people closer for at least one night a week? Even just today, Nathan ran out to Whole Foods for me to grab some stuff for us for dinner because it's been struggle town here since we got back from all of our adventuring, and I just haven't had a good grocery store run. I was knee-deep in homeschool curriculum, and I started to start whining to him about it. I just looked at him, and I was like, you know what? I'm not going to get upset about it. I can only do one thing at a time. And he said, absolutely. You can only do what you can do. One thing at a time. Now, obviously, I had more than one thing spinning, like for real, in real life. But in that moment, (laughs) we both chose to just stay calm and enjoy some Whole Foods chicken pot pies, which are amazing, by the way. And by the way, you know you're really overdue for a store run when you also have your husband grab toilet paper from Whole Foods. I'm just saying. (laughs) Today, I'm so excited to get into Psalm 1 together, as I don't know why I'm super giggly today. Nathan's like, oh dear. Well, today I'm so excited to get into Psalm 1 together. It's funny, as I read this text over and over, I will never forget sitting in seventh grade Bible class in Christian school as my teacher, Mrs. Roop, was taking us through Psalm 1, and the silence was deafening as we all sat there trying to wrap our heads and our hearts around phrases like the counsel of the wicked and the seed of the scoffers. We didn't have the message version, you know, to translate for us to phrases like Sin Saloon and Smart Mouth College. But what I can remember is the imagery of a tree planted by streams of water. That I could picture and understand. That I could long for even then. So Psalm 1 is this entry point, obviously, into the entire book of Psalms. And it's borrowing topics that can be found in the wisdom books, such as Proverbs, and it makes them into lyrics of a song. And the hope is that one who sings this song or psalm will embody what they're singing, to own it, to truly believe it, to see themselves as carriers of this song. And in this case, to love God's instruction, to love His way to even delight in it and think on it day and night. Nathan and I met a man on the Alaskan cruise who came up to us when we were just having coffee one morning, and he sat with us and asked if he might tell us his story. And the man was from New York, and he was once in the music industry, in the mainstream music scene, and he told us of his radical experience of finding God and how that eventually that led him to lay down his music career in pursuit of really following God. And eventually he became a pastor for several years and he has many facets to his story. And he's now actually not pastoring, but he's in the corporate world. Really the main thing he kind of wanted to ask Nathan and I about was that he feared that the gift of songwriting was never going to come back into his life, especially now that he was in the corporate world. He has this whole new routine and how he missed it 
and longed for it again. But when he sat to write, nothing would come out. Yet he'd keep mentioning these beautiful experiences with people, even in the corporate world, and how God would lead him to speak to them about God, and they would have these life-changing encounters, like at business meetings and stuff. And because of it, their lives were changed. By the end of it, we prayed with them, and just before he's about to walk away, the Lord spoke to my heart with some encouragement for him. And what I told him was that I really felt like the gift would return to him if he would just give over his fears to the Lord, and if he began to just sing to the Lord out of delight in Him, just out of a way to bless God's heart, and not for a finished project. And then so strongly, even as I was talking to him, the Lord said, tell him that he is the song. He's being my song to the people that I'm putting in his path. His eyes welled up with tears when I said that as I repeated it, you are the song. So this is the intention and the heartbeat of Psalm 1. It's not just for singers. It's for the people who will see themselves as stewards of this story, of God's hope, of God's redemption, and consider themselves heirs of it, of the full life that He offers us. So let's read it together. Psalm 1. This is in the ESV. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That word blessed right there from the top, it actually means happy. I love that. The Latin translation is the word beatus, and it's the source of the word beatitude, which means supreme blessing. It says that this supreme blessing comes to those who do not walk with the wicked, basically, or take their advice, they don't stand or hang out with people who make a lifestyle of sin, nor do they sit in the seat of scoffers. A scoffer is basically all of the above, but they just take it to the next level and are loud about it. They jeer, they taunt the righteous. They make a mockery of them and their holiness. Some scholars believe that there's a reason for the order walk, stand, sit, as it would show increasing allegiance. You might casually hang out with sin, but standing is choosing to hang around a bit more, and sitting certainly suggests that you're going to stay a while. But happy is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Another word for delight there is longing, which I think we can all understand what longings are like. So there's a blessedness or a happiness that covers us when we learn to long for the instruction or the direction or the way of God. The word law there points to the word Torah and points us to the law of Moses, which ultimately points to the covenant God made with the people of Israel. You'll find this all in the book of Exodus, long story that you already know, short, God seeks out Moses to basically be his mouthpiece to the people of Israel to lead them out of slavery from Egypt. A really long and complicated journey unfolds as Moses leads the people out and God leads them straight into the desert. And by chapter 19, as we all know, everyone is just basically over it and super restless. 
and you can cut the tension with a knife as the people are so weary. It says that they encamped in the wilderness, which doesn't seem like a real respite from the desert at that point. Moses goes up again to meet with God, and God tells him to say this to the people. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." You probably heard me say several times on this podcast that in desert or wilderness seasons of my life, one thing God is so clear in showing me again and again is what He truly values in this life, and in the life to come for that matter. You hear it in His words here, I brought you to myself. I love that. I bore you on eagle's wings. That reminds me of like when He goes mama bird on us. I love that. It says, you'll be my treasured possession. You're mine. You are to me a kingdom of priests. Isn't that beautiful to hear the heart of God? Well, the people of Israel certainly didn't understand the heart of God and what in the world He was doing, much less what He wanted or valued. In fact, they declared many times, if we just went back to Egypt into slavery, at least then we'd know what to expect. They couldn't see that what He valued all along was them And you know what else he valued for them and for us? It's himself. He values himself on our behalf because he's so sure of who he is. He's positive that no one else will do. So it appears that maybe it was never really about the destination. The promised land has always been him. Well, God in his perfect way initiates a covenant with the people. Moses goes down to the people and tells them what God has spoken to them. And in true Israelite fashion, they are like, of course. It says that they all answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses goes back up to meet with God and God tells him that he's going to come near enough to the people and speak so that the people will hear him and they'll truly believe Moses and Aaron had to set very specific boundaries for the people and not getting too close to the mountain when God was going to come near, saying that even if they touched the mountain, they would surely die. So God tells them, you know, consecrate yourself, wash your garments, be ready for the third day, because on the third day, I'm going to come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. And sure enough, on the third day, a thick cloud covers that mountain and a loud trumpet blast goes off. And it says that Mount Sinai was wrapped in thick smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The whole mountain trembled as God conversed with Moses through thunder. And we're getting a glimpse of something here that we need to get a glimpse of more often. The terrifying holiness of God, honestly. It's just good for us to remember the awe that surrounds this God who draws us close to Himself. With Moses as a go-between, the law, several chapters worth in Exodus, was given over the people. And again, they were like, got it, we're in. And in chapter 24, this beautiful covenant ceremony happens that requires the blood of a sacrifice And it says that God then invites Moses and Joshua and Aaron and other leaders along with 70 elders of Israel to come upon the mountain with him and they can worship from afar. Can you even imagine 
the trembling to even get to where you could worship from afar. And then it says that they saw the God of Israel. It says that under his feet was pavement made of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. So the Lord tells Moses from there that he can come up closer on the mountain and that God will give the Ten Commandments to him written on tablets of stone. Well, again, God's timing is interesting. (laughs) Moses draws near, and it says a thick cloud again covers the mountain. This time for six days, Moses is in a holding pattern, waiting on the Lord. And the seventh day, he calls out to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And it says in verse 17, chapter 24, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. He was there for 40 days and 40 nights. In chapters 25 through 31, then we have this very thorough and beautiful layout and instructions for the tabernacle. God was already following through on his promise to the people. And now he was delivering on that promise by telling Moses exactly what he needed to do to build a place where he could come and dwell in the midst of the people. Well, sadly, we all know what happens. In chapter 32, the people are just plain tired of waiting on Moses and they give up. They give up hope that he's ever coming back. And while God is sharing very special building plans with Moses, The people get busy making plans themselves, and they build a golden calf. And all kinds of evil unfolded, every form of walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing and dancing and a lot of other things in the way of sinners, and sitting in the seat of scoffers. And God, always knowing everything, calls it before Moses even sees it. Can you imagine if you are Moses at this point and you hear God say, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Moses is literally risking his life on behalf of these people daily. And here they go again, defiling everything that God set in motion for them. God basically says, go deal with them while I burn in anger towards them and consider just wiping them off of the face of the earth. Well, Moses, giving us a glimpse of the Savior to come, contends for the people calling on God's mercy to come forth once again. This gives us a little bit of framework, doesn't it? Why Psalm 1 would start the whole songbook in the middle of the Bible by singing, happy are the ones who long for God's way. I may have shared this with you before, but Ronald Steinbrenner in his book called Seven Fire Anointings, you know, just some light reading. It's in his chapter that talks about God giving us a spirit of adoption instead of a spirit of bondage and choosing to live as a son and not a slave. He says, God's law held me in a time when my sonship relationship was not fully formed. In a period of time when I did not understand the great father-son relationship awaiting me and available to me through Christ. The law of God, we must understand, is exceedingly wonderful, both in its call to relationship with God and in its call to respect among men. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The circumstances surrounding the inauguration of the law were spectacular. The fire of God burned on Mount Sinai. The audible divine voice of God was heard, and tablets written by the finger of God were delivered to the people. Nonetheless, he goes on to say, infinitely greater glory and blessing has manifested 
in Jesus Christ. He then quotes David Wilkerson, a well-known revivalist, who says, The law is not intended for the person whose obedience springs out of a desire to please God. He's not concerned about what is legal or illegal, what is permitted or forbidden. He only has one criterion. What does my Lord desire? You can lay out all the law before him, all the rules and regulations, and he will say, You don't have to tell me not to do those things. I wouldn't do anything to hurt my father. I love him. I've already forsaken the world and its lust to go after him who my heart desires. Show me what he wants, not just what he forbids. I want his heart's desire to become my actions. I want to know his mind and obey it. Sure, I love his law, but that's for the lawless, for those who haven't come into a knowledge of intimacy with Christ. I have another law at work in my heart. It's the law of love, one that says, Lord, what can I do to please you today? Isn't it beautiful what Christ brings to Psalm 1? This is the beauty of getting to read the whole counsel of God through the lens of the gospel, isn't it? We can now read the Old Testament not with a slave or even a servant mentality, but rather from a place of being a son and a daughter. Hebrews 3, 5, and 6 says, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are His house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Speaking of the hope in which we glory, let's talk about this tree planted by streams of water in verse three. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. This is what our lives look like when we choose God's way. It doesn't mean we go without hardship or trouble. Trees go through a lot. Sometimes they're uprooted. You might feel like that today like a toppled oak that you see on the side of the road after a storm, your roots just dangling and exposed for everybody to see. It's so hard for people to get a glimpse of our underside, isn't it? We love for everyone to swing on our branches and see our blossoms. It's so hard when we're toppled down and we feel so uprooted. Some of us have been uprooted and now we are in the process of being replanted. You're in shock. You're like our hydrangea bushes out there planted a little bit too late in July. You're feeling the heat. The timing maybe just seems off. Your system's jarred, not knowing if your root system's going to latch on anywhere. Some of us are in the pruning season that we all know too well, feeling stripped bare. We wait on God whose timing doesn't quite align with ours. And yet if we are planted by streams of water right next to the source of life that we need, we will yield fruit in season. Our leaves will not wither and all that we do will prosper. This is what happens when we walk, stand, and sit in the way of God. When we stay planted in Him, even when it's taking longer than we hoped, even when it feels like we went from the desert straight into the wilderness. Well, you know, I have trouble just staying in the Psalms. I like to jump all over the place, obviously, We've been in Exodus. (laughs) But Jeremiah 17 is another place in Scripture where we're likened to trees. Those of us planted in who God is, planted by streams of water. Verses 7 and 8, it says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, 
whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. I remember teaching on this passage once and realizing the context that it's sitting in. It's definitely familiar language, isn't it? Like us being likened to trees, the emphasis on being planted by streams of water. But if you go up to the top of the chapter in Jeremiah 17, you will read this. It says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their asherim beside every green tree on the high hills on the mountains in the open country. Well, when I first read this, I think I had heard of the word ashram before, but I didn't quite know exactly what it is. Ashram or asherah, you can look it up, they are idols that are like these pole things that are made to look like trees. So what this is saying is that up on the high hills in the open country where they would go to worship, there would be altars for worship, but also scattered all throughout the trees and where they would worship, there were also what were called groves of Asherah. Okay, so because this is so blatant and out in the open in front of God and everyone, I kind of take this to mean either they were just scoffers who utterly mocked the holiness of God and what it means to be a worshiper of Him, or it's that they simply couldn't even see how idolatry had crept in. Maybe this is my naivety, but I wonder if it's the latter. This is Judah we are talking about, the tribe of Judah from the nation of Israel. The name Judah means praise. I think that this tree passage is sitting in this context for a very good reason. The Lord is showing us a great contrast, isn't He? Just like He does in Psalm 1. It's a lot more fun, I will say, to be likened to a tree, even through the uprooting and pruning But it's a whole other thing when we are warned about our ancestors being covenant-breaking idol worshipers. Was it that they couldn't see it? Or maybe they just were the stiff-necked people that God said they were, and they wouldn't own up to it. My ESB study Bible says that there were idols next to every green tree in every conceivable location, and that this was the sin etched on Judah's heart. So it's sort of this, yes, we are worshipers of the God of Israel, but just in case, just in case He doesn't come through in the way we hope, it's probably not going to hurt to throw in a couple of these fancy poles, carved from wood to look like trees, just in case. Here's what's really interesting. I've studied this passage before, and I've actually taught on it. But just today, in light of Psalm 1, I saw something that I had never seen before. So again, looking at Jeremiah 17, in light of Psalm 1, happy or blessed is the man or woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, and so on and so on. Get this. It appears that the word Asherah is derived from the Hebrew name Asher. Guess what Asher means? It means happy or blessed. Okay, so hang with me here. Look at this with me in your mind's eye. In the places of worship, right next to their altars where they worship the God of Israel, right next to every green living tree, they fabricated their own happy and blessed. 
Now, this might be my own interpretation here, but it was so convicting to me that I have to believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in it somewhere. I always want you to investigate things for yourself, but I will say definitely be careful investigating Asherah polls. There were some websites I didn't even feel good about opening just by the name of it, but my inner linear Bible says that these polls were often associated with the Canaanite goddess of fortune and happiness. I've also read that it was believed to represent a goddess of fertility. Um, the message definitely says it was having to do with sex. Whatever the case, it made me recall the first time that I ever really read Jeremiah 17 and how the Spirit of God came and literally wrecked my world with this passage. You know me and my love for creation and all of the beautiful analogies, especially with trees. I was just simply innocently looking up another passage where we are likened to trees as God's people and what happens when we're planted by the source and boom, God lowers a boom on me. God revealed several places of idolatry in my heart. The craziest part of it all was that I just didn't see it there. I was blind to it. It didn't feel or even look like walking in the counsel of the wicked or standing in the way of sinners or being seated with scoffers. But the Lord so gently and thoroughly revealed to me that it was much more covert than that. In fact, it was disguised in hashtag happy and blessed. (laughs) As I read verse 5, my heart was crushed. It says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and in an uninhabited salt land, which is barren land or desert. My real identity is that I am that tree planted by streams of water. That's what's true of me. I'm a child of God. But He lovingly and very specifically show me that the affections of my heart and who I was really trusting in It was all placed on something and someone else besides Jesus. I was looking to someone and something other than Jesus for my happy and blessed. I had unknowingly attached my identity to some things and trusted in some things and was currently trusting in some things that made my happiness and my blessing feel a little bit more secure. Unknowingly, I had linked my provision, my sense of worth, all the while asking myself, I'm happy and blessed, right? (laughs) Interestingly enough, the name Asher, which is a Hebrew biblical name, not only does it mean happy and blessed, it means to go on, to go straight, or be honest. It made me think just how many times in my life has something started out so honest, I was on the straight and level path, and somehow I began to look to the left and to the right. And when I couldn't keep up with all that I saw, I began to strive And at the end of all my striving, I had only fabricated what it was that I was longing for, and it just wouldn't satisfy. As God convicted my heart, I literally imagined myself this tree that God says I am, yet all around me, underneath the shade that I can offer the world, there were idols. The Lord said, clear it all out. Make it so that many can come and sit underneath your shade and let it be free and clear of anything else you're holding on to just in case. This isn't something that's popular to talk about, trust me. The night that I spoke about it once after the Lord had come in and lowered the boom on me, 
it was like crickets in the room. <laughs> it's not like you see beautiful Instagram memes of trees planted by streams of water with Asherah poles erecting out of them and hand lettering that says, you know, like, cast down your idols. This is the stuff that nobody wants to talk about. All the while, these two main tree passages in the good old OT, Old Testament that is, are set in high contrast for a reason. I must be willing to come face to face with my long line of covenant-breaking, idol-making, own-way-taking fathers and trace the lines and see. See if there be any wicked way in me. That's Psalm 139.24. That word wicked there, we've talked about this before, but it means an idol as fashioned. See if I've fashioned anything here just in case. If this were a cycle of lament, here's us returning to the mercy and the faithfulness of God. He is faithful and just to forgive. I will tell you this, when I cleared the area under my tree, (laughs) the place where I was made to be shade to people, when I broke free of idolatry in those areas, a freedom came from my life like I had never known. Even now, this whole passage, this message has made me realize that I need to go through again and trace the lines to never assume I'm not holding on to anything I shouldn't be. Not only did God forgive, He broke something loose in my voice, which we've determined is also our calling, right? He's also made me keenly aware of what idolatry looks like when it just starts to creep in. In closing, Psalm 1 verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Meditates is described in my ESV study Bible as an active pondering day and night, perhaps even muttering to oneself in pursuit of insight. It says some suppose day and night speaks of the work of professional scholars who spend all their time pondering the words of the law. But in the view of similar instruction in Joshua 1.8, which says, Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. It goes on to say, readers should see this as setting the ideal of facing every situation, be it ever so mundane, with a view to pleasing the Lord by knowing and following His word. I love that. It brings us back to that place of the law of love and the spirit of sonship being born in us. It moves us from this place of mere law abiding and memorizing, which in and of itself just gets us striving and fabricating. It brings us more to this posture of, don't show me just what you forbid. Show me what I can do to bless your heart today, Jesus. One more cross-reference before we go. I think delighting in God's way and meditating on His Word day and night might look just like one and the same. Verse 8 of Jeremiah 17. It says, He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. That sounds intentional, doesn't it? Sending out our roots by the stream knowing where we must be planted, yes, and then taking the extra step and sending out our roots to the source of life. No need for fabricating any trees when day and night we're that tree that's connected to the source. Yielding fruit in season, leaves never withering, 
holding firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. I'll talk to you soon.